0: Thank you, Pat. I want to thank Jamie and the elders for the privilege of being back and opening the book of God to the people of God. Because we know these words are always a savor of life unto life to all who will receive them. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the ninth chapter of Acts. And immediately, many of us would recognize that's one of those great mountain peaks in Scripture when Saul, that first century terrorist... Uh, Comes to know Christ and his life is dramatically transformed, becomes the great apostle Paul, gave you almost half your New Testament and was the great missiologist and church planner and theologian and he was converted to Christ here in chapter 9. And so often we, we read that wonderful account of that conversion, but we don't know what else happens in that scripture. And one of the most important verses in all the Bible in understanding uh, an element that we want to deal with today is found in this same chapter, down in verse 31. The Bible says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, was being edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Some time ago, when just devotionally reading through the book of Acts, I came to this verse. And I was captured by one word in it. And I just stopped and began to think about that, began to meditate upon that. It was the last uh, last word of the verse. It multiplied. The church multiplied. You know, we get a little excited in our church from time to time when when we have some additions that join every Sunday. And yet this early church was being multiplied. Multiplied, thousands of people were being swept into the kingdom of God in a very short time expanse. 3,000 in Acts 2, a couple of chapters later, 5,000. Multitudes, it says, repetitively through the book of Acts. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Acts that they were what? turning their world upside down. They were not just engaging their culture. They were seeing their culture converted. And thousands upon thousands of people began to be saved and come into the family of God. And they began to multiply. I thought about that. Think what they didn't have that we have. They did. We do so little sometimes with so much, and they did so much with so little. Paul never preached with one of these fancy little things around his ear. These microphones, they didn't have any amplification. They didn't have uh, Bible study materials like we do. They didn't didn't have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. How'd they get through life? The the printing press hadn't even been been placed. They didn't have gospel tracts. They didn't have marriage seminar materials. They didn't have discipleship materials. They didn't have any of the things that we have. They didn't have devotional books. In most of our homes, we've got uh, many devotional books. They had none of that. The Bible, the, the printing press hadn't even been, been, been invented. They didn't have what you hold in your hand this morning. The New Testament. Uh, in Acts 9, it hadn't even been written yet. They didn't have air travel. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have internet. They didn't have any of the modern means that we have to communicate the gospel. They didn't have all the technological advances we have to get the message of Christ to the world. And yet, they were being multiplied. And we're not. They were turning their world upside down, and we're not. Did they have something that somewhere along the line And all of our sophistication, our technology, and our our familiarity with the gospel message. Did they have something back there in that early church that is ours today, but that somewhere along the line we seem to have forgotten? I think they did. I think it was the key to everything they were doing. And it's found right here in this verse. And if we could recover it. It might be said of us what was said of them. Note that verse very carefully. It says, then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And the and walking in the fear of the Lord. Who's doing that today? When's the last time we Bible believers gave conscious thought of living in an environment of the fear of God today? Who of us could, could define what it really is to fear God or to walk in the fear of God or to live in this environment of the fear of God? And yet when you read the book of Acts, this concept is basically on every page of the book of Acts. They were living in an environment of the fear of God. They were walking in the fear of God. It permeated their existence. It permeated their thought processes. It permeated their lives. This concept of walking in the fear of God. You see, we live in a no-fear culture. In fact, we've raised a couple of generations in the Western world and in our nation particularly, by and large, not all of them, but by and large have been raised to believe there were no moral absolutes. And so consequently, relativism becomes rampant. And, and we've raised a couple of generations with no fear. In fact, you know, there's even a, an apparel company that markets to them. Have you ever seen those caps that just say no fear or those t-shirts just say no fear? And instead of the church engaging the culture, well, if we're not careful, what subtly happens is that the culture creeps, its, it creeps in and seems to penetrate the very, cult, the very church culture. So that we wake up to realize that we too are living in what one might refer to as a no-fear culture where this concept of the the fear of God becomes a forgotten concept even in the experience of those of us who have a daily devotional life. So I want to pose three questions this morning before we go. First of all, a why question. Why do we seem to be living in a no-fear culture in Western Christianity? Secondly, a what question. What does it really mean to to walk in the fear of God. Does it mean that God has this big club of retribution? And if you say something wrong or do something wrong or don't do this or do that and don't do that, that he's going to hit you over the head with this club of retribution? And you've got to walk around on eggshells because you're afraid that something bad's going to happen to you? If, that, if that's your fear of the Lord, it's foreign to the biblical concept. A why question, a what question, and finally a how question. How can we put a handle on biblical truth that we're going to hear in the next 20 minutes or so? And walk out of this room like they were walking in the fear of God. So that it might be said of us that we had peace and were being edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We too began to turn our world upside down. We too began to see God do something that there would be no explanation for except the power of God and the move of God upon our life and upon our church. First of all, a why question. Why, why, do we, why do we seem to be living in a no-fair culture? Could it be that without really realizing, some of us in, in the Western world have lost sense of the holiness of God? He's a holy God. The word means he's different, he's apart, he's set apart. In fact, the Bible says that Habakkuk says that he is so holy that he cannot look upon sin. That's why the darkness was enveloped for those three hours when God turned his back when Christ became sin for us on the cross. And what has happened very subtly in some places is that we seem to, in an honest quest and in a sincere desire to reach these lost couple of generations that are out there, hoping that we can somehow make the gospel more palatable for them to accept. If we're not careful, what some of us do is take God off the throne of His holiness and bring Him down here on, a, on our human level. So much so that He becomes our good buddy or somebody we have such little reverence for, we could run up to in a youth rally somewhere and sort of give a high five to. Do you remember Isaiah? When Isaiah went to to temple that day, just like you came to church today to worship, but this day was different because Isaiah said, and he recorded it in chapter six for us all, he said, this day was different. He said, I saw the Lord. Isaiah got a glimpse of the holiness of God. And he said, I saw the Lord. And Isaiah said, He was high and he was lifted up, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. And Isaiah said that angelic choir and that antiphonal chorus began to sing back and forth to one another in that scene. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You think Isaiah's first inclination was to run up there to the throne and give him a high five? No. Remember what he said? He said, woe is me because I'm undone. And I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm hanging around a bunch of folks like that. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see Him in the beauty of His holiness, we see ourselves as we really are. Remember John? All the other apostles had met a martyr's death, and John, over 90 years of age, exiled out on that rock of an island called uh, Patmos, where where the Romans dumped the criminals and the mentally insane to fare for themselves. And John, because of the gospel and the blood of Christ, was exiled over there over 90 years of age. And he got God gave him the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling. In chapter 1, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in the beauty of His holiness and radiance. You think John's first inclination was to say, Hey, good buddy, you're shining today. You're looking good today. No. You remember what he said? He said, I fell down at his feet like I was a dead man. If we had time today and we don't, I'd like to walk you through every man and woman in this Bible that had the power of God on them, the anointing, the, the hand of God. I don't care what terminology you use. And you know what we'd find? we would find that there was a common thread woven through the fabric of the experience of every single one of them. And you know what it is? That in one way or another, it's said of them that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. All those Old Testament saints, you remember them? They were walking in the fear of God. All those Old Testament saints. Remember Noah? The Bible says in, in Hebrews 11 that by fear, Noah built the ark. Remember the Hebrew midwives when the Pharaoh declared that all those male babies be put to death that were two years of age and under? It was those Hebrew, uh, those midwives in Exodus chapter 1 that, in, in verse 17, that says they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they saved those little baby boys. The fear of God's on all those Old Testament saints. Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness wandering. Got them to the portal of the promised land on the eastern shore of Jordan. Knew he was going to go up on Mount Nebo and die. And so what did he do? He preached a series of sermons to the people of Israel. They're called the sermons of remembrance. It's what your book of Deuteronomy is in your Bible. And in Deuteronomy 10, he, he says to them, I, I'm going to go up on Nebo and die. You're going to go into the promised land. And then he asks a question in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. What does the Lord require of you as you go in? Think about that after 40 years since the Red Sea experience. Now they're going to go into the promised land, Canaan. And he asks a question, what does the Lord require of you as you go in? And here it was, but to fear him as you go. That was God's requirement. So Joshua takes them through, dry shot through the Jordan. Begins the conquest of the promised land. then way down at the end of Joshua's life, in his book, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. He gathers the people together for his final words to them after all they had experienced together. And what does he say in Joshua 24, 14? Now then, I'm leaving you, but fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. All those Old Testament saints. How about that Proverbs 31 woman? We pastors like to march her out on Mother's Day. And we just go right down that list of how perfect she is. And every mom there goes to lunch feeling about half guilty by the time we're through. But if you read far enough into Proverbs 31, you'll find the secret of her life. It's in Proverbs 31, verse 30, where it says this, A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised all those old testament saints we turn our bibles into the book of uh, into the gospels the story of uh, the stories in matthew mark luke and john of, of how christ was alive in the flesh walking the ways of this world speaking the world's greatest words ever spoken and in luke chapter 1 the first chapter of luke's gospel we're introduced to a young teenage virgin girl pregnant think about it with the long-awaited Christos anointed one Messiah growing in her womb and in Luke 1 she sings a song of praise to the Lord we call it the Magnificat and she sings my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior and she goes on in that song to sing his mercy is on those who fear him. Same chapter, Zechariah's lost his speech, you remember? And he got it back, and the Bible says fear fell upon all of them. In Luke 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. And verse 26 says they were all amazed and they were filled with fear. In Luke 7, he's going through a village called Nain. And he comes upon a funeral procession. Bad enough, there's a widow in black following the casket. But this isn't the funeral of her husband. He'd previously died. This is the funeral of her boy. And Jesus brought life to that boy. And verse 16 of Luke 7 says... Fear fell upon all of them in the village of Nain, and the name of Jesus Christ was glorified. It's all through the Gospels. We turn our Bibles into the book of Acts, the dynamic story of the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these early believers who turned their world upside down. Acts 2, Peter preaches the great Pentecostal proclamation. 3,000 people saved and baptized that day. And what does it say down in verse 42? Fear fell upon all of and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. In Acts 5, we're introduced to a couple causing dissension in the church. Ananias and Sapphira. They were lying to the church. Worse, they were lying to the Holy Ghost. And God struck them dead, remember? And remember what Acts 5, 11 says. Great fear came upon all the church. In Acts 10, Peter takes the gospel of Cornelius up at Caesarea, the first Gentile convert. The door that opened for most of us in this room to get in. And what did he say when he got up to This He said in Acts 10, Whoever fears God and works righteousness will be accepted by him. In Acts 19, Paul takes the gospel to the Ephesians in that great metropolitan city of Ephesus of a quarter of a million people in that first century world. And he goes in. He didn't have a church marketing plan He didn't have any church planning help behind him. He had himself and a couple of friends and the power of God. And he went in and turned that city upside down with the preaching of the gospel. And Acts chapter 19 verse 17 says, they were all amazed and filled with fear. It's all through the book of Acts. Then we turn our Bibles into the epistles. The instructions to you and me from Paul and a few of these others. The instructions to us in this dispensation of grace. It's all through the epistles. In Romans 3, Paul laments a people, he said, who have, quote, no fear of God before their eyes anymore. In Romans 11, verse 20, he says, stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear the Lord. To the Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us perfect holiness in our lives. And we say, yes, how? And he says, by walking in the fear of the Lord. In Acts 5, that great chapter where it talks about the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, the employer employee relationship, in the context of verse 21, what does he say in Ephesians 5, 21? Submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. And listen to the last part of that verse. In the fear of the Lord. Now, I've heard that verse quoted a thousand times, but all the time, it's usually about the first part of it. Submit yourselves one to another. But do you know that our very relationships... The way I live with my wife and my kids and and those with whom I work and those in my social arena, I am to be living in an environment of the fear of God. I don't have time to go through all these epistles. It's in all the epistles. And finally, we get to the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and we're introduced to an incredible scene in chapter 19 where all the redeemed of all the ages, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people who've ever been redeemed are around the throne of God, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And then all of a sudden, it comes to a halt. In verse 5, Of Revelation 19 says, a loud voice comes from the throne. And listen to what it says. Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. That's who will be praising him around the throne. So I have a why question. Why? When all those Old Testament saints, all through the Gospels, all through the book of Acts, All through these epistles instructing you and me right now in this dispensation of grace in which we live. And even finally when we get to heaven is the constant theme of all of God's people. This attitude of walking in the fear of the Lord. Why is it something that some of us who truly love Him and worship Him haven't thought about lately? Could it be we we need to recapture a glimpse of the holiness of God in our own experience? Secondly, a what question? What does it mean to, to walk in the fear of God? Does it mean that you have to live in constant fright? That he does have this club of retribution. He's going to pound you over the head if you do something, say something wrong. Does it mean you have to live in constant fright or constant flight? That you just got to run, just got to run and hide. got If that's your concept, it's far. Listen, the, the most common Old Testament word. It really means to stand in awe before Him with reverence and respect. And the most common word we translate in the New Testament means it's so, so akin to that Hebrew word. It has to do with this reverential awe. To so stand before the Lord with this reverential awe and respect. So much so that it becomes the controlling motivation of your life. So what happens in a church culture when walking in the fear of the Lord becomes a forgotten concept? There emerges into that church culture an antinomianistic attitude. That just means it exhibits little restraint of evil. And moral failure becomes epidemic. Not just in the the pew, but, but, but in the pulpit. When walking in the fear of the Lord becomes a forgotten concept. I came to know Christ when I was 17. I had a good mom and dad. They were moral people. Didn't, didn't, we didn't go up in the church. They didn't take me to church. After I came to Christ, they did and served Him the rest of their lives. But when I was 17 and converted to Christ, after a young man witnessed to me at a basketball game one night and took me to a gospel preaching church the next Sunday, I could count on that hand as a 17-year-old how many times I'd ever been in church in my life. And and they were basically all of them, midnight mass on Christmas Eve with all my cousins and uncles and aunts that gathered on Christmas Eve. I didn't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were books of the Bible. And that young man that witnessed to me took me to the Sagamore Hill Baptist Church in East Fort Worth. It was a a great church back in the 60s when I was a teenager in those days. In fact, over a hundred of us from that church went out into gospel ministry in, in that decade had a large youth group I, I I was on January 3rd 1965 as a 17-year-old I was converted to I'm 63 so let me just don't add it up I'll get I'll tell you right now I'm gonna be 64 next week actually uh, but I was converted that day and uh, there was another young man there Jack Graham he's pastor of the Prestonwood Baptist Church over in Fort Worth today at uh, Dallas today and, and he was there the day I was saved. We became accountability partners. We preached together on the streets of Fort Worth back there as teenagers, and and we both pastored in Oklahoma in the seventies, close to each other. I was first, I was fifteen years at First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale, and Jack had been called to the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, thirty miles from you for those fifteen years. In the early nineties, I went back to pastor First Baptist Dallas, and he went to pastor First Baptist uh, Pre- Prestonwood in Dallas. So we've been together all of our lives. Well, when we got back to Dallas in the early nineties, we heard there was going to be a Reunion over at Sagamore Hill of all those people we were teenagers with in the 60s hadn't seen them in a quarter of a century and we were really excited about going back and seeing all those guys we ran around with and the girls we used to date and you know how reunions are you want to go back and see folks my wife Susie didn't grow up in that church and did Jack's Deb, wife Deb and they weren't nearly as excited about it as we were but on the given night we went over to the to the reunion had a great time we were driving back to Dallas from Fort Worth that night and Jack and I were sitting in the front and we said we were talking about how great it was to go back and look at every guy we ran around with and every girl we ever dated and have have no regrets. And we said, what did we have back there when our hearts were so hot for God? And, and, And what did we, we remembered we had a pastor who pastored there 43 years, Fred Swank. We had a pastor who taught us to walk in the fear of God as young people. And you know what he taught us? He taught me that walking in the fear of God was not the fear that God was going to put his hand on me. It was the fear that God might take his hand off of me, that God might take his hand of anointing and God's hand of blessing protection off of me. That's what it is to walk in the fear of God, that you don't want to say something. You don't want to look at something. You don't want to go somewhere that might, that might cause God to take his hand of blessing off of you. This is what Paul feared when Paul said to the Corinthians, I fear that when I myself have preached to others, I might become a castaway. God might put me up there on the shelf. This is what the prayer of Jabez is about. It's not some little get-rich-quick formula that you can pray. What did Jabez pray? That your hand might be upon me. That's the fear of God. It's not the fear that God will put his hand on you, but the fear that God might take his hand off of you. When you begin to live in that environment, It'll make a difference in what you do when you get to temptation's corner. It'll make a difference in which way you turn at intersections of life. It'll make a difference in what you watch and in what you say and where you go. And with whom you go. When you live in this environment of the fear of the Lord that you don't want to do anything that might take God's hand of blessing off of you. Now what happens when you begin to live in that environment? What happens when you begin to walk in the fear of God, conscious of it? I want to tell you what will happen. God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. Anytime we gather in a crowd this big, there's somebody here today with that secret sin. Nobody else in this room knows about it, but you do. You go back to it, and then you ask God to forgive you, and you're never going to do it again. And you go right back to it. You just repeat the process over and over and over. When you start walking in the fear of God, I want to tell you what will happen. God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome that sinful desire. You say, well, that's your idea. No, that's that's the Bible idea. It's what Proverbs says. Proverbs 16, verse 6, listen to what it says. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Did you hear that? By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. What about Moses at Sinai in Exodus 20? Verse 20. It says, God has come to test you, to see what is in your heart, that his fear might be upon you, so that you might not sin. Exodus 20, verse 20. You begin to walk in the fear of the Lord, and God will give you supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. I'll tell you something else he'll do. He'll give you a supernatural ability to make wise decisions in life. He'll give you discernment that you've never known before. You say, where do you get that? From the Word of God. How many times when you read the book of Proverbs do you come across this phrase, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what about what the psalmist said? Psalm 25, verse 14. The secrets of the Lord are with those who fear Him. And to them, He'll reveal His covenants. You ever read the Word of God and not get anything out of it? You ever read the Word of God and think, well, what? what? no wonder. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secrets of the Lord are with those who fear Him. And to them... To to them who fear him, that's the ones he'll reveal his covenants. You begin to walk in the fear of God, you'll be astounded at the wisdom and the discernment that you'll get in life that you need. And the ability to overcome sinful desires. I'd like to walk around this a little bit more, but our time is gone. So we're going to have to run to the third question. First of all, a why question. Secondly, a what question. What is the fear of the Lord? Not the fear God will put his hand on you, but the fear that God might take his hand off of you. And finally, a how question. How can we put a handle on biblical truth today? So that you and I can walk out that door like they did in the fear of the Lord. So that it can permeate our thought processes this week. So that we can live in that environment in our home and at our office. That it might be said of us what was said of them. How can we do it? Where do we begin to find out the how? Like everything else in the Christian life. With the word of God. So I take you back to Sinai. I mean not to Sinai. To the eastern shore of the Jordan. Where Moses is there with the people of Israel before he goes on Nebo and dies. Before they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 31 is one of the most beautiful scenes in Scripture. He gathers all the people of Israel together before he dies. And he takes the Word of God, the tablets of stone written with God's own finger he had received at Mount Sinai. And and the Bible says he holds it up before the people. A hush comes over the crowd. And Moses, that great leader, reads to them the Word of God. And then listen to what he says, Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13. That you may hear these words and learn to fear the Lord. And that your children may hear these words and learn to fear the Lord. As long as you live in that land you're about to possess. It's a learned behavior. So I want to challenge you in the normal traffic pattern of your devotional life and reading. Every time you come across this concept, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, circle it. You'll be amazed how every day God will keep it before your eyes. Every day God will remind you to walk in the fear of God. And so to close the how question, I just want to simply close with, a, with an illustration to better show you than tell you about this attitude of the fear of the Lord. When I was 16 years old, before I came to Christ... I had, a, I, I had a mom and dad who sacrificed so much for me. They, my dad never made $10,000 a year in his life. And they, they didn't think they could have children. They had been married for over 15 years when I was born. They were both 40 when I was born, about or more. And, and they didn't think they have kids. So here I came, and they sacrificed so much for me. I never played in a ball game from little league on. I didn't see my dad in the stands. If it was baseball season, my glove was just as good as anybody's on the baseball team. If it was track season, my spikes were just as nice and new and shiny as anybody's on the track team. I never remember my mom from my first conscious thought till I went off to college ever buying a dress or a blouse or a pair of slacks or a shirt or a skirt or anything. Twice a year, they'd come this big parcel from Stanford, Texas, out in West Texas where my great aunt Lily lived. And the clothes she no longer wore, she sent to my mom. My mom wore those clothes. When I was 16, I'd always had aspirations. I wanted to go to law school. And when I was 10 or 12, I had a day off. I'd get on the bus, go downtown Fort Worth, sit in the courtroom all day long, watch trials. And I, I knew my mom and dad weren't going to be able to help me afford to go to college, much less to law school. So when I was a junior in high school, uh, I quit playing ball and got job, I went to work. I got a job after school every day, and I got a job on the weekends. And when I was junior in high school, I needed a car. Not for social reasons. I needed a car to go from school to work to work to these jobs that I was had, and I was trying to save some money. And and I knew we couldn't afford it. My mom went to work at D. Mac Ray Elementary making pies during the noon hour. And between what she could put aside and what I could do and, and my dad, I, I got a car when I was a junior in high school. Now this is the mid-sixties. The car was almost ten years old. It was a fifty-six Chevrolet. Oh man, do I wish I still had that fifty-six Chevrolet today? Because it'd be worth a lot more than that $250 we paid on it. We put $50. dollars i got more than that in my pocket right now. We put $50 hard, cold cash down on that car and financed the other $200. And when I got that car, my dad set down some rules. I couldn't leave the house to go get in that car. I didn't stop at his chair in the living room and answer four questions. Where are you going? Who are you going with? What are you going to be doing? When are you going to be home? Boy, it used to tick me off to have to do that every time. Especially when my buddies were with me, had no curfew, could do whatever they wanted to, when they wanted to. I'd stop my daddy's chair and tell him where I was going, who I was going with, what I was going to do, when I was going to be home. One Friday night, after we'd taken our dates home, the guys I ran around, we, we, we hung out at a place called Sutter's Barbecue in East Fort Worth. Had a little barbecue shack back there. You'd go in, had a counter up there, and a few booths. But out front, they, they had something that was really neat back there in the golden, oldie 60 days. Kids never heard of this today, but there was this big awning that went all the way in front of Sutter's barbecue. And you'd pull your car up under that awning, and they had people called car hops back in those days. And you would roll your window down because nobody had electric window, and they'd bring that aluminum tray out there and stick it on the window and have that bar going down. would bring out a barbecue sandwich, root beer, coke, or something. So, well one night we'd taken our dates home, we all pulled in down here at this end of that awning. We were standing out in front of a car drinking a Coke and just talking like teenage boys do. All of a sudden I saw my dad drive into Sutter's barbecue. I thought, my goodness, what's he doing here? In fact, I've never seen him eat out in my life. I've never seen him out past 8 or 9 o'clock unless we went into extra innings in a ball game in my life. What's he doing here? I looked at my watch and I said, "Uh uh-oh, I know why he's here. I was supposed to have been home 45 minutes ago. So fortunately, he didn't see me down at this end. I positioned myself around my friends where I could see him, and he pulled his car down at this end of that awning. And I could see the lights, and he pulled it up, and he stopped, and I could see the lights go off. He got out of the car, and about the time he got to the front of his car, he saw me. Now, you ever seen how those F-16 fighter pilots lock in on that target? (laughs) Right before they drop that bomb, get get him right in that target. Man, our eyes just locked. I'm down there going boom, 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 boom. What, is he going to come down here and embarrass me in front of me? What's he going to do? And here's what he did. He just stared at me, and then here's what he did. And then he just locked back in, and he got in his car, and he drove off. I beat him home, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why. I feared my daddy, not physically. I was 16 or 17. He was almost 60. I could have taken him down physically if I'd have had to. I didn't fear him physically. I'll tell you what I feared. And I feared this the other not long ago when he was 95, when he breathed his last breath holding that hand right there. The thing I feared the most that night as a teenager and throughout the rest of my life is that after all he had sacrificed for me, the thing I feared the most that I would do anything that would dishonor or displease my dad. Friend, that's what we're talking about. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The thing we ought to fear the most as Christ followers is that we would do anything in our lives That would dishonor or displease our Lord. Solomon is purported to be the wisest man who ever lived. Wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us the folly of all those things we think are so important some of us. Laughter, lust, luxury, liquor, all those things. He closed the book way down in the last chapter, chapter 12. Down at the end in verse 10 by saying this. Now then, he said, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Well, that ought to make us perk our ears up. When the wisest man who ever lived says that, especially when he's inspired of the Holy Spirit, listen to what he said. Now then, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Fear God. That's it. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Oh, that it might be said of us, what was said of them, that the church had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we too were multiplied. You say, Preacher, I want the hand of God on me. Well, friend, it was the hand of God that brought you to this place this morning. It's the hand of God that opened the Word of God to your heart this morning. And it's the hand of God that's going to lead you to begin the great adventure Of walking in the fear of the Lord. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, seal these words in our hearts. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your hand upon this church. Upon this pastor. These people. We just pray you'd bless them indeed, Lord. That they'd have peace and be being built up. And and they would turn their world upside down. And on us individually as we walk from this place, may your hand be upon us as we walk out of here walking in the fear of the Lord and living in that environment for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.